I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. Let's be honest. The relationship between the sexes has never been easy. If it had, the human race would not have generated millennia of literature and art and music, exploring the hopes and the despair that come with friendship, romance and sex between men and women. There was no golden age of peace and tranquility here. Nevertheless, there is surely an unusual degree of uncertainty and anxiety in the air at the moment, particularly when it comes to who men and women are, how they differ, and what, if anything, they want or need from each other. Nina Power is a writer, academic and philosopher, and her latest book dives into the choppy waters of, in the words of its subtitle, masculinity and its discontents, and is called What do men want? Nina, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you, Nick. Now, I think it's very important to get across one thing at the start of our conversation, which is that recognising the challenges faced by men and masculinity today is in no way a diminishment of those faced by women. And indeed, it seems to me one of your critical points is that this shouldn't be reduced to a kind of zero-sum game, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So I think this is a broader social problem. I think we currently have a sort of vision of the world which seems to reduce all of our interactions to exchanges in which someone loses somehow. And this isn't really surprising if you think about the kind of broader economic pressures and questions of competition and so on. But I think when it comes to the sexes, we've been fed this narrative for quite a few years now that if one sex advances, then the other must be losing. And we see this on both sides of the sort of male-female divide. And I wanted to really get away from that because I don't think the majority of our interactions as men and women actually fit that model, which is a very reductive image of social life. In line with that, I was struck by how much the language of what's sometimes known as personalism or relationality featured in your book. You say early on, the act of being with a person is an ongoing daily commitment. A person is not a thing. And then a few pages later, we do not in reality live as isolated identities, but instead exist in relation to people around us. That's central, isn't it? Our personalistic, our relational identity as human beings. Yeah, totally. And again, I think we're often given this image of the world in which we're supposed to think of ourselves as individuals, isolated, and that this is somehow a good thing. But I think as we come to a kind of more critical understanding of liberalism, contemporary modernity, but liberal individualism, I think more and more people, whether they're left wing or right wing or centrist or religious or non-religious or philosophical or non-philosophical, are all coming to the same conclusion, which is basically that this image of the liberal individual actually doesn't serve anybody. 
it doesn't work when we think about our most intimate relationships. So think about the relationship between a mother and her child. We can hardly talk about this in terms of the liberal individual. It makes no sense to do that. Um, our feelings towards those people that we love, our family, our friends and our broader intimate community. Again, it can't be reduced to anything other than the relations themselves. And in a way, that's not a reduction, that's an expansion. So I think we need to think again about how we are completely enmeshed with each other and, and often dependent on each other, whether we're children or whether we're sick or whether we're elderly. Actually, the the part of our life in which we are truly independent, let's say, I mean, which is an illusion anyway, but it's very small for all of us. You know, we're social creatures and we're cooperative. So that goes for men and women too. Partly this is just a reflection of my own reality, right? I couldn't write a book that was generalizing negatively about men because it's not true. It's not true of my life, yes. you know. So I wanted to reflect that personally, but also more, more generally. And I'm very influenced by people like Ivan Illich, who's a very important Catholic, well, sort of renegade Catholic thinker, you know, strange thinker in many ways. Um, but yeah, lots of philosophers of, of relation um, mm. too. So having established we're not going to be drawn into a zero-sum game and <laughs> that this is fundamentally a, a relational conversation, talk us through a bit some of the problems facing men and masculinity. So you talk about violence and suicide and homelessness and, of course, misogyny and the incel movement. Tell us almost what drove you to write the book in the first instance. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm largely known as a feminist. My first short book from 2009 is a feminist book, but it's looking at work and so on. And I wanted to write a book from the perspective of a woman about men and as a feminist, but more in line with the kind of second wave feminist movement. So not what gets talked about today as feminism, which I largely don't think is feminist. I think there's a strange thing that's happened the stereotype of the second wave feminist as this man-hater has actually sort of become true for liberal feminism, like you're allowed to hate men. So in the wake of this kind of discourse, I think over the last sort of five, ten years, where men have become the targets of an awful lot of negative press. And the point is, it's not to deny the fact that men are responsible for the vast majority of interpersonal violence, right, they are, and everybody wants to try and understand why that is and, and to come up with a solution. But I think the response that says men are inherently evil and should be condemned is actually counterproductive in the sense that it, it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy in which men feel increasingly isolated and evil and are more likely to act out violently. Whereas if you say, look, we're all capable of harm, we're all capable of violence, we all want a way of being better, and that goes for men and for women, and we can all strive to be better in our own lives. And so I talk about the relationship between masculinity or men and goodness and the fact that we must be able to think about what it means to be a good man, which sounds very traditional, <laughs> very old-fashioned in some ways, but I think we can think about that anew. And this is actually a much more positive way of thinking about it rather than condemning all men as somehow toxic or evil because it, it means that it will actually reduce violence because being a good man might be knowing when to deploy strength, but it's not about the excessive use of strength. So it's pulling back from that image of men as immediately violent. How widespread do you think that view is, that deeply antipathetic attitude to men? Because I, I certainly recognise it, but I wonder if it's just a very small number of people who voice it. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of people in their everyday lives wouldn't necessarily encounter this kind of 
stuff about toxic masculinity and so on. And I think there is a sense in which it's a sort of media discourse that's kind of been perpetuated. But it is going to institutions as well. And I think this is why I talk about the American Psychological Association document on masculinity, for example. So when you have these very negative images of men that are actually uh, infiltrating major institutions and having an effect on, let's say, how men might seek therapy, then it does have a kind of broader social impact. So yes, I would say most people just get on with it. <laughs> and they understand very well that men and women exist and that, you know, they love their brothers and their fathers and their husbands and, and their sons and so on. And they wouldn't take it seriously, even if they encountered these sorts of generalisations. But I wanted to make it clear that we can also pull back from that. It's not inevitable that we end up in this kind of negativity about men. You quote some quite alarming statistics in the book about the level of violence against men as well as perpetuated by men and the disproportionate number of men who commit suicide and large number of people who are homeless who are men. So there clearly is some palpable negative impacts on men in society, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And I think to go back to one of my earlier points and slightly extend it, that this is a question of social role to a large extent. It's one of the things that men who become very depressed and, and suicidal even seem to talk about is this kind of loss of status or this lack of not being needed, let's say, having no place in which their skills or their strengths might be in play. And of course, we can tie this to the larger economic and historical shifts, which is partly to do with deindustrialization in Western countries, the sort of absence of physical labour. And so again, we have to rethink these old problems in a new way in order to diminish male depression and male suicide, to rethink how we structure our, our lives so that they provide meaning for everybody. Mm. There is a profound thread of socioeconomic thought throughout your book. As you mentioned there, you say Western economies don't, as a rule, require large amounts of physical labour. And that's changed in my lifetime. You know, 40 years ago, heavy industry was still relatively widespread and it was almost exclusively male and there were roles there. And in a very short period of time, it's completely gone. At exactly the same time as we've embraced a supercharged consumerist capitalism, which, as you say at one point, encourages a lack of self-restraint and, and a, quote, a kind of perpetual toddler-like demand for things which is a phrase I really liked. And that kind of was almost a pincer movement mm -hmm. on historical conceptions of masculinity in society, isn't it? Completely. I'm very, very critical of this kind of consumer idea. And I think it's very revealing. So this is very internet sort of discourse. But when men start to work out, and that I talk a little bit about this kind of culture of fitness and strength, and you know, where men get very into the gym and weightlifting, it's often perceived as somehow right wing to care about your health and to get strong. And I wanted to really pull back from that whole politicization of those things, because I think there's a way in which that can also preemptively stop people from, let's say, taking care of their health and thinking about who they are in their community. Because if we're always blaming structures, if we're always saying, well, it's not my fault, I'm unfit or I'm unhappy, you know, I blame capitalism. I mean, yes, sort of, it's true. 
But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you don't have any agency whatsoever, which is this whole thing about being able to be better or to be good. Mm. And I think we should be very wary of politicising those desires. Again, I think this is something that's happened in the discourse where everything becomes political Mm. and whatever people think or do is somehow immediately either left wing or right wing. Mm. And I think we should be moving away from thinking about that. I wonder if you might comment a bit on the kind of rise of, of men's health, men's fitness mm-hmm. awareness. The reason I ask is because I'm slightly divided on it. On the one hand, there is a strong emphasis on men being willing to talk about their physical presence, their bodily existence. And when it comes to things like prostate cancer, that's obviously a very, very good thing. But I was also struck by my son, who is now a bit older, comes home from school age eight or nine and talks about a six-pack. Now, when I was eight or nine, I had no idea what a six-pack was. But but, but he did at that age. Mm. And he wasn't reading men's fitness magazines, but obviously that culture had infiltrated as early as junior school. So it strikes me as a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah, I mean, obviously, my initial feminist response would be, well, now you know what it's like for women. But but I think the sort of the non-zero sum game answer would be something like, well, look, in a culture obsessed with images, which is highly narcissistic, highly consumerist, people spend their days looking at pictures of other people, which creates all kinds of things, envy, aspiration, you know, depression, whatever. Like, it's a very dynamic and dangerous world, right, in terms of what we're presented with. And and we're filled with all these contradictory feelings. It's not great, but it's not surprising, in a way, that that kind of imagistic culture is filtered down Mm. that young. And I, I think, you know, I grew up without the internet until I was 18. And so I had a whole childhood, as we all did, free of that. And I think... One of the things that I'm trying to talk about in the book is how we actually need to talk to each other face to face and have all of these real human interactions, which I think actually serve a therapeutic function. When I talk about the need for male mentorship and that kind of thing, it it takes away that kind of impossible desire to look like someone who who also doesn't look like that either because they're using filters and Photoshop and Mm. whatever. I wonder how you think the last two years will have changed all this, because it mm. strikes me that for a long time we were hurtling headforce into a virtualization culture where we believe we could take any relationship online and all of a sudden we were compelled to for a long period of time and many people came back thinking, actually, it's not much fun and when we virtualise relationships, when we take away that physical element, we lose something very, very profound. Do you sense a kind of reaction against that now? I hope so. I mean, I hope you're right. I hope that is the direction of travel, as in people were exposed to it. I have a theory that especially younger people will come to associate the internet with everything that's uncool because they will have been on school. School. Oh, my parents are on Facebook. Uh, it's really boring. <laughs> that there might be actually a, be like a punk rebellion, like almost like a Luddite refusal of technology in favour of nature. So I have this theory of the Zoomers because they've grown up with it and that they'll be disaffected, actually. So they might be the great hope of how we get over this. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that idea. I, 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 I really hope you're right there. I know. I hope so too. I mean, I'm highly optimistic, I have to say. On the topic of physicality, which is central to the book and central to your ideas, there was one number of things you said, but one that particularly stood out for me, partly because I'm a big fan of the philosopher John Locke. Um, And you say at one point in the book that he argued in the late 17th century that our bodies are our own, 
meaning our property, but we should avoid treating them badly because they are also the property of God. And then you go on to say capitalism is therefore lock without God, <laughs> which I think is a terrific phrase. Unpack that a bit more for us. Okay, well, I mean, you're, you're a Locke fan, so I'm being a bit polemical about Locke in what I say there. But yeah, I, I think one thing that we've lost, absolutely, is the idea of a relation to anything higher, you know, any sense of verticality. And so someone like Locke, even though we associate Locke with liberalism, you know, a lot of those liberal thinkers did also talk about God. It wasn't that religion didn't exist. It was how to integrate it with a kind of understanding of politics. So I think, but what we have now really is a lot of a sort of horizontal secular society in which you are somehow permitted to do anything you like to your body because it's yours after all, right? So we, we've almost become like a commodity ourselves you know and therefore you can change it you can take it back you can you can sell it wherever i mean this is also tied up with capitalism very complicated of course when we sell our labor power from a marxist point of view we're also being exploited so we have to be careful of thinking about economic exploitation and and the relationship between a certain kind of possessive individualism but I think in defence of those liberal thinkers, they were actually trying to integrate very complicated questions, which is to do with the relationship between freedom of worship and political reality. It's like, how do you actually have a system that permits differences? The fact that people do disagree, the fact that people do worship different gods, that you know, you're coming into contact with vast quantities of people um, who don't agree with you or don't see the world in the same way that you do. And how do you construct a system in which that doesn't immediately become antagonistic and warlike. So it's not exactly Locke's fault. And and if we were truly Lockean, we would still have God in the picture after all. And we mm. would understand that our, our bodies are not ours only, if you see what I mean. It reminds me of those conversations that exist still, thankfully, only on the fringes of the kind of libertarian right about the legitimacy of selling one's organs, right. which is the logical extension of this. Yeah. I own my body. There are no other legitimate constraints on my agency in deciding what to do with my body. And therefore, if for whatever reason I want to sell a kidney, it's not the state's job to prevent me from doing so. Now, intuitively, that's horrendous. That really rankles with us. But it is the logical extension of that. Yeah, oh, completely. And I, I agree. And I think we are... At that point, it's correct that they are being consistent. But I think we need to say, actually, there are limits. We still have laws around things like surrogacy. But surrogacy is another huge topic, which is not only a feminist question, but also one of bodily integrity, relationality and so on. And and economic, first and foremost, you know, the idea that you can basically hire the womb of somebody. But I'm right in saying that I think in the UK, at least, you're not allowed yeah. to pay for surrogacy. Oh, you're not allowed That's to earn right. from surrogacy. Is that right, isn't it? Yeah, but people are getting around that by paying women in India and poorer parts of the world to carry mm. their child. There's something wrong here. But it's very, very difficult to articulate where those boundaries are in a, let's say, a, a liberal libertarian system because on what basis are we saying that there's a boundary or a limit? And this is why I think these, these conversations need to be much more public. You know, we need to have these conversations about what we think we are as human beings mm. together, mm. rather than let this kind of economic imperative sort of run away with itself. And then we end up in sort of some horrible transhumanist yes. dystopia. 
Let me ask a question about the relationship between masculinity and God. We've been talking a bit about yeah. God there, and masculinity is obviously the topic of the book. I don't want this interview to become about my family, but I've got to mention this. My daughter's doing RSA level at the moment, and she's very fond of quoting to me, or sometimes at me, one of her favourite <laughs> feminist theologians she's studying, who says, if God is male, then male is God. And, of course, the way societies have traditionally talked about God has been very problematic in the past. I think everyone can acknowledge that. But you also say at one point in the book that a society without God, without any image of a father, mm. becomes instead a rivalrous society. And I think yeah. rivalrous is a fascinating word there. Yeah, sure. So I'm picking up on work there by um, Alexander Mitscherlich, who's a sort of German sociologist who wrote a great book called Society Without the Father, and also some psychoanalytic work by Juliet Flower McCannell, who writes a book called The Regime of the Brother. And both of their arguments, to some extent, is to say, well, actually, we've had a collapse of the paternal function, which may or may not have ever existed in reality. But nevertheless, it's very obvious that we've kind of collapsed into a society in which men and women are quite rivalrous. They're more like brother and sister, because instead of saying the binary relates to each other in particular ways and women have these strengths and men have these strengths and we're kind of different but compatible, what you have is more or less a becoming sameness of men and women. So there's a kind of horizontalism, a kind of becoming closer. I mean, Illich makes the same argument in his gender book. He says that basically the separate spheres have collapsed and we're all the same, basically. The economic system makes us too close, mm. actually, and mm. that we've lost the, let's say, reverence that we might have had for our difference. Mm. I don't share the same exact criticisms of Christianity as being patriarchal, although obviously some aspects of religion do and have behaved in that way. But I don't think this is fundamentally what Christianity is, if you see what I mean. Mm. Let me put a devil's advocate point yeah. to you here, which is that somebody listening to our conversation might say, OK, I kind of understand your critique but essentially what you're advocating, therefore, is a return to some kind of hierarchy or some kind of unquestioned notion of authority. That's not the way forward, is it? No, I, but I think what we do need to do is rethink what we value and what we think power is. So in our society, we think that status is having money and having a great job and these kinds of things. And these are the things we're supposed to want and value. But these are not the only values. The value of, let's say, having a child and looking after a child and being caring and compassionate and loving is also a value. And in fact, it's a better value. It's a higher value than making loads of money. And also the question of power. If we look back at history and say, oh, well, women never had any power. It's not true. It's not true. It puts women in an image of victimhood, which when you go back and look at the second wave, even these texts on patriarchy, like Gerda Lerner, her amazing text on patriarchy, the first thing she says is that women are not victims. And I think this is a mistake that we make today to imagine that there's something good about being a victim and that somehow historically this is the role of women. It's not. Women have always had power. And we shouldn't forget that <laughs> because otherwise we do end up back in a hierarchy which says that women are more like children, which is where we really don't want to go. So it's not about traditional roles. It's not about gender as a form of social expectation, but it is about recognising difference and celebrating it without reducing it to either sameness or bad hierarchy, if you see yeah. what I mean. I do. Well, that helps us move towards solutions or, or at least positive responses to the situations that we've been talking about. And I want us to dwell on that a little bit as we 
come to a close in our conversation, you talk a lot about the language of virtue in the book. You say we've lost sight of the possibility of linking masculinity to goodness. That seems to be really at the heart of what you're positively proposing here, isn't it? Absolutely. So we know that the word via, where we get the word virility and the word man, the ancient word for man is via, and it's also where we get the word for virtue from. So there's a deep historical linguistic connection between men and virtue. Again, the, the complicated question is, what virtues do we share as men and women? And are there virtues that are specifically male and female? Yes. But we might, well, even in the first place, let's say we don't live in a virtuous age. So even to bring back the conversation of virtue, I mean, we've kind of degenerated into a post-virtue age in which there's only kind of emotivism and everyone is just shouting at each other because we've got no coherent things to ground upon which to say, well, some ways of behaving and living are better than others. Mm. I mean, this is almost like the worst thing you could say today is some ways of living are better than others, even though we know it's true. <laughs> There's something awful about that. It's reactionary, it's right-wing, it's dangerous, it's authoritarian. But again, I think even to get back to the place where we say virtue is a good thing and we can all participate in the virtues and we can all become better people, I think to even get back there <laughs> would be a start. Yes. There's another notion, a lovely notion in the book, you talk about heterosociality and also mm -hmm. playing games. And these seem to be really positive, constructive means of, of addressing these issues. Tell us about how games are important in these conversations. Yes. So the heterosociality is the fact that we live in a mixed world. Men and women encounter each other more than they would have ever done at any point in history. We don't have the separate spheres. We're together at work and, and also at play. And so it's partly to do with this way of rethinking positive social interactions and not reducing everything to either one of exchange, whether it's sexual exchange or some sort of financial benefit, but rather to rethink the capacity for play, which we all have. And I think our age has become quite dogmatic and quite restrictive. I use this word puritanical which is this combination of puritanical and prurient. Mm. So the culture is prurient. We're very interested in sex and the sex lives of rich, famous people. But at the same time, if somebody gets it wrong, or then it's extremely judgmental. You know, it's, yeah. it's puritanical. It's like a very bad combination of things. So the kind of playfulness, which isn't necessarily sexual, but that exists at the sort of everyday level. And, I, and I'm sure, again, most normal people <laughs> know this. That's just the fun of being around each other. You can have all these yes. lovely, interesting interactions which don't have a telos that are just there for their own sake. And I suppose it's just to remind people who've maybe become a bit serious that actually there is this other aspect of, <laughs> yes. of life. <laughs> yes, as you say, there's more ways of loving and being together than merely sexual. I think that's yeah. so important. Yeah. I mean, it sounds very obvious. I think, I think basically a lot of what I wrote in the book is really obvious, mm. but for some reason I felt compelled to restate it. Well, perhaps because our age doesn't see it as obvious, perhaps because our age overlooks it. The other point, which is absolutely counterintuitive to so much in our culture, is forgiveness. Yeah. And which you talk about this um, throughout the book, and you say the world we live in now operates as a kind of permanent recording device, mm. which would make forgiveness difficult in the most virtuous of societies. And as you said, ours is not the most virtuous of societies. Yes. You also say our post-Christian age is extraordinarily unforgiving as well. How do we become more forgiving? How does forgiveness play a constructive role in masculinity and the relationship between the sexes? 
Yeah, I think, again, it's a really complicated one because obviously in a Christian culture, it makes sense. You know, there's a kind of understanding of our fallenness and our brokenness and the fact that we constantly transgress whether we mean to or not. When you say, forgive those who trespass against us, you know, we forgive those who trespass against us. It's a mutual back and forth. It's like, yes, I make mistakes, you make mistakes. We have to accept that that's a constitutive part of social life, actually, but that we can come together nevertheless and that we must forgive in order for there to be unity in the community, like to take communion or whatever. But obviously, in a largely secular in practice society, I mean, of course, we owe lots to Christianity, including universalism and so on. But let's say in practice, what you end up with is the kind of judgmental aspect of religion, but not the kind of brokenness, humility, mercy aspect. And I'm also very kind of influenced by René Girard, who's a fantastic anthropological, theological thinker. I mean, hard to reduce him in that way. But it's a basic point that if you don't forgive, you end up in an infinite spiral, an escalating spiral of violence. Mm. So at some point, somebody has to say, OK, enough. I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or let's stop this. And I think in this sort of battle of the sexes, we don't want this kind of escalation in which men and women are basically forced apart by virtue of mutual suspicion and hatred. So everybody has transgressed. Everybody's made mistakes. I include myself. Everybody has behaved stupidly or drunkenly or idiotically or misunderstood a situation. It doesn't make that person fundamentally malevolent or evil. It reminds me of a beautiful line at the end of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, the awful daring of a moment's surrender. This is the moment where you have to stop and open yourself up and apologise and admit your fallibility in the hope that you'll be forgiven for it, but in the knowledge that that isn't guaranteed and it is, it is a moment of daring. Yeah. I can only really end on one obvious question, which is a short question, but of course it may not have a, a short answer, but it is the question you ask in the title of your book, which <laughs> I guess I have to put to you, what do men want? Well, I mean, obviously I say partly, A, this is a joke at Freud's expense because he famously asks what does woman want and he famously can't answer it. Yes. So it's a, a slightly jokey, tongue-in-cheek reference to Freud. I say, obviously as a woman, I can't know what it's like to be a man, although obviously I've spent my life around men and, you know, I love men. And I do have a list where I ask my male friends what they wanted and they did so there is a joke list of what men want which include things like a shed a beer <laughs> pussy <I'm>... whatever <laughs> you know so there is a reductive answer to the question um but it also includes things like to be a good man was one answer so i do i do answer it quote unquote <laughs> yeah. but i think basically i wanted to go in through desire as a question because it then it allows me to talk uh, slightly psychoanalytically it allows me to talk about consumer capitalism, you know, in the way in which our desires are being manipulated. And it also tries to sort of say, well, these aren't the only things that we want. What men want might also be to be good, to be better, as we all do. And that those are the things that we share, precisely. The book is called What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents. Nina Powell, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thanks, Nick. Next week... I'll be speaking to John Cottingham about his book, In Search of the Soul. Soul, of course, is a noun, rather like mind. So we perhaps already come to it thinking it must refer to a thing, 
And then we think, well, it can't be a physical thing, so maybe it's a sort of immaterial thing. And already we're down the road to a lot of potential confusions. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.